Welcome to Tripping Over the Barrel, a series that highlights the unique personalities within the oil and gas industry and the stories they have to share with your hosts and lead storytellers, Tilo and Dr. Funkenstein. And today on Tripping Over the Barrel, we've got Sean Forbes rocking her Tom Ford somewhere in the mountains in Colorado. You rocking Tom Ford right now, Sean Forbes? Not today. <laughs> <laughs> Tim, do you even know what Tom Ford is? The puzzled look on my face. I have no clue what you're talking about. (laughs) Very expensive clothing. It's probably the type of thing that Sean wouldn't approve if she saw on uh, an expense account or somebody trying to procure this item at a company that she worked at. Absolutely not. I would suggest Target. (laughs) (laughs) This is going to be fun. Uh, Sean Forbes and I met about a year ago at a really great place. That was the, um, the green Russell in Denver. One of the first places I'm going to go back to when they open it back up. But basically what happened to him was Corey Scott and I, Corey Scott was in town on some energy. Friend the show. Yeah. Friend. Yep. Yep. And, uh, I was like, Corey, I'm going to take you to some of the, my favorite spots in, in Denver tonight. So where do we go? We hit Los Chingones. Love that spot. Mm-hmm. Um, where else do we go? I think we, oh, we got a slice of pizza at Famous Jay's a little bit later. One of my favorite uh, late night pizza spots. I'm like, all right, how about for a nightcap for a drink? You ever been to the Green Russell? I said, oh, I, don't, I don't think so. I said, all right, we got to go to the Green Russell. We're going. So 14th and Larimer, you go down the stairs. You have to tell them some secret password or something like that. And they let you into the back, which is like a cave. Have you been there? I've been, I've been before it was a Green Russell. I know the building you're talking about, though. Super fun. So Corey and I sit down kind of like uh, on the end of the bar. And then there are two people sitting right near us that were clearly talking about oil and gas related stuff. Right. And Corey kind of overhears them and he's like, are you guys in oil and gas? They're like, yeah, of course. You know, that's, that's what we do. So where, where do you work at? They're like, Oh, Calvin ventures. He's like, I just had a meeting with you guys like four hours ago. So kind of pieced it together, started talking. And uh, since then, Sean, I've seen you at like every single networking event that there's been. So glad we met them. Yeah, it's almost like that opened uh, up our relationship. You know, I hadn't known you before then. And then it was like we're best friends. Pretty much. Yeah. But how Uh, many times have you probably seen each other at other networking events? And just because you never met, you just didn't know that you'd, you know, now that you see it's, it's obvious, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I saw you at a at a golf tournament, maybe more than yep. one, and uh, an event at the Denver Petroleum Club. And this was yep. actually right before yep. the pandemic hit, and we were it's kind of like a like a networking type of event, and we ended up having dinner afterwards and spent all yeah. night drinking at the bar. So um, it's kind of nice that we got that in right before everything shut down. Yeah, that was fun. I thought it was going to be like a super fun year. I'm making all these new friends. We're going out and getting dinner after getting drinks. And I've been stuck in my house for the next 10 months. So <laughs> now, I wonder if I should tell my uh, first meeting of Sean's story here. So we're, <laughs> we're, we're planning to have for this particular podcast. And uh, Jeremy sends out an email, invites Sean on the podcast. And then I just kind of pile on and said, uh, something. And I, you know, Sean's name is spelled S-H-A-W-N. And of course, you know, stupid me just make the assumption that, you know, that's a guy. And so I, I don't know what I said in the email, but the, the response was classic. I don't know, Sean, you, I think you got a standard response for it, but it was clearly, 
hey, wrong assumption, dude. <laughs> yeah, I think Jeremy said something about we need to talk about how people address you as a as a male all the time. And then I don't know, you said something about he and I said, perfect example. Like, by the way, I'm a she and it was like he jumped right into it. It was perfect. Yeah, but how, how often does that happen to you? It happens quite a bit, actually, and not just in business, but in, in my personal life, too. So, you know, if I call the bank and they ask for my first and last name, I can hear their, you know, huff in the background thinking that, you know, I'm calling for my husband or something. So I always have to say, I'm Sean and my middle name is Mary. So this is me. And then they kind of settle down a little bit. But yeah, it's been a battle my entire life, but I'm used to it by now. It's just fun now kind of playing with people when they make that mistake. So, You know, what's, what's interesting is my middle daughter is named Erin, E-R-I-N. And, you know, Siri, of course, I can't say Aaron without it trying to dial another person on my in my contacts. That's A-A-R-O-N. And uh, anyway, but it's just kind of funny. I, I fall into that trap and I've got a, a child who kind of fits into that same category, right? Not to mention, Tim, you have a last name that you're probably somewhat sensitive about when people mistake. So, you know, you've lived the Sean Forbes life a little bit, too. In that a part. little bit. I certainly have to have a sense of humor about it. Yeah. As no doubt. No, as we all do. With as it, yours, Jeremy, with your last name as well. But. Exactly. <laughs> my last my last name has proceeded to get cooler as I got older. It's like I was given a hard time when I was a kid. My, my daughters have said this to me, too. They're like, I wish I had any other last name. I'm like, just wait. Like once you get to high school and college, it's a cool name. Right now, it's a struggle for you since you're eight years old. But when you get a little bit older, you'll be fine. So, so Sean, yeah. one of the things when we had that first conversation at the Green Russell that stood out to me is you work in Denver, but you you're like 45 miles out. Like you have a pretty long drive. And I remember the reasoning kind of cracked me up. You're like, dude, I'm from Los Angeles. Like me being in a car for over an hour one way to work is not a big deal at all. So why don't you talk a little bit about your, um, your growing up in, in LA and tell us how you got into the industry. Uh, all right. So I, I was born in California and uh, grew up in uh, a town in Los Angeles that was pretty much kind of a Mexican gang neighborhood, if you will. So uh, <laughs> my, uh, my high school was uh, predominantly uh, you know, Hispanics and Koreans and, and black folks. And there was probably maybe 10, 10 white kids in the entire like senior class when I graduated. Wow. So, um, you know, learned and loved diversity uh, growing up. And when I moved to Colorado, it was kind of a culture shock, to be honest. I went into Walmart for the first time and I had never seen so many white people in the same place at the same time. So mm. it was, it was an adjustment for sure. But uh, grew up, grew up in LA and, um, in high school, I started my first job, um, almost as an entrepreneur. I took a print shop class and learned how to do graphic design. And where I grew up, there were a lot of party crews and, and raves. So I started to learn how to design flyers. So I had a page, I had a pager and people would page me and call me up. I'd call them back and they'd say, Hey, we need a flyer design. So I'd meet up with them and get the details and create the flyer and put it on a floppy disk and sell it to them for 50 bucks. So floppy disk. Yeah. (laughs) That's kind of aging me, but it was a good time. It was a good time. 
Um, so uh, after high school, I worked for Bank of America for six years uh, at a loan center. So I worked in uh, finance and customer service there. Taught me taught me a lot about how to deal with people. And I think that's sometimes why I like to give salespeople advice, just because um, I think the way that you talk to people can really establish, you know, a, a good or bad relationship from the from the get go. So I uh, worked for Bank of America and then I had my first purchasing job in 1998. I was a clerk for an aerospace company and mm-hmm. have been in procurement ever since. Um, so uh, 2001, I met my husband a couple weeks after September 11th. I was at a fundraising event for a firefighters family fund and he happened to be at a bar down the street and we ran into each other and been together ever since. We had a daughter uh, 2003 and moved to Colorado when she was eight months old. So I've been in Colorado since 2003. I would have thought that you're way younger, than that. <laughs> but that's a, that's a, that's a, a good thing. Now I'm not saying you're immature or anything like that. You're yeah. very, very professional, very mature. I'm just saying yeah. I wouldn't have yeah. expected that. Thank you. I appreciate that. I, I get it a lot. And it's a, it's a blessing and a curse to be honest, because, you know, it's a, it's a blessing because, you know, I look a lot younger than I am and it's a curse because, because I look so young, I'm um, considered a young person without a lot of experience. Mm -hmm. And so I don't maybe get the respect that I should sometimes from people. So. Interesting. Yeah. I, I feel like I had this challenge early on in, in my career. I've, I've always viewed myself as, you know, somebody who aspires to be, you know, sort of beyond where, where I'm at in my career, right? Like dress for the job that you want, not for the one that you have today type of thing. And it was challenging for me being, call it 23, 24, 25, and having bosses who had kids that were maybe 17 or 18. And they're just these like punk high school kids. And I would notice the, the way that they talk to their, their sons on the phone was the way that they talked to me. And then I leave the room and the 45 year old sales guy comes in and he talks to him like an adult. I'm like, no, no, talk to me like that. Like, <laughs> exactly. I'm not, I'm not your punk kid who like snuck out last night and went drinking in the, and stuck behind the high school in the field with his buddies. Like I'm allowed to go to a bar and be an adult. <laughs> I have a, a similar kind of story. You know, when I started, I was doing technical presentations to senior reservoir engineers and things like that. And I kind of always felt like I was at 25 years old, not being taken seriously. And that's actually when I started growing this, the the beard that I have now, the goatee. And I always said I was going to grow the beard to look older. And then when I get older, I was going to shave it off. But you know, now of course it's become part of the personality and my kids will revolt if I shave it off. But now it, now it ages me. Now I need to shave it off to look younger. I feel like you, you did shave it once when you were working together. I'm like, what's going on here? Tim? We did that like, for no shave November. So oh, just we, for, we, we were yeah. going to grow. We had, uh, we had the guys and we all got together. We shaved everything off and then we started anew. So I actually grew a Fu Manchu that, that November. That was fun. No, I, I remember that. It, unfortunately this year, I didn't see anybody in November, so it wouldn't have mattered. So, <laughs> so Sean with, uh, when did you break into oil and gas? So you had the bank of America thing. You moved to Denver 2003. Um, you had the procurement purchasing background. Um, how'd you get into the industry? Yeah, so I, I stayed home uh, with my daughter for three and a half years. So there's kind of a gap in my, my job history there. But um, after about three and a half years, I was ready to 
leave the wonder pets and Dora the Explorer behind and go back to work and <laughs> go back to work. So um, my husband does home construction and through that, we, we meet a lot of really great people. And one of the folks he met, we had a mutual friend who was the president of a pump distributor and a, like fabricated skid package uh, sales company. And they had a position available and I applied for it and interviewed and, and got the job. And it was kind of like a low level data entry, a little bit, well, a lot kind of less um, lower than my skill set, I would say. But after a few months, I was promoted pretty quickly into managing all the procurement and then eventually was the project manager for all the engineered packages. Um, and then that so that company sold a lot of skids to oil and gas clients. So that's kind of my my first step uh, working for a supplier supplier, actually. Um, so from there, I went to an engineering firm. I worked for Forerunner that was eventually purchased by URS. I worked there for a few years and then um, went to work for Encana. I worked for Encana for four years. And there I, I supported about 12 different operating areas in, in 10 states in oil and gas. So I got a pretty good experience supporting you know, upstream and midstream uh, work there. And then um, I went to Whiting and did uh, midstream capital projects up in North Dakota. And then we were sold to Tesoro. Uh, Tesoro, uh, before it was changed to Endeavor, and now it's Marathon. I worked for the logistics team, and they're also a, a downstream a refinery company. So it was pretty good exposure to get me uh, exposure to upstream, midstream, and now downstream and engineering and working for a supplier company at the time. So in my mind, I was kind of like this well-rounded oil and gas procurement professional, you know, very flexible with the types of um, projects that I was supporting. So from there, I went to Discovery so Midstream. Not- yeah, Discovery Midstream and then and then Kalman was my last stint. So. So I'm, I'm looking through your profile and listening to the company names in your procur- pro- procurement world. Were you mainly procuring equipment, uh, pipes and, and uh, things like that? Or did you ever venture into the technology side or, you know, what was, what were you in charge of trying to get? Pretty much everything. I mean, I've purchased office furniture, you know, lease trash dumpsters, printer. I've bought printers, you know, from frack services to building compressor stations, pipe, I mean, you name it, anything related to oil and gas, I was involved in, you know, negotiating, you know, contracts for software services, um, all kinds of good stuff. It strikes me that in in that type of role, you really need to understand the fundamentals of the business, right? Yeah. It, you People can't really get away with just frivolously buying stuff yeah. because you're going to be the one that has to provide the checks and balances at the end of the day. That's that's pretty neat. Did, did you have a preference between doing upstream, midstream, downstream field services stuff? Um, or is it all sort of the same thing? No, it's very different. Um midstream kind of has a bad rap. You know, the drilling and completions guys don't think that that midstream is very sexy. They think that what they do is very yep. sexy and, and it is, you know, it's very high spend, uh, high risk. Um, but you know, once you get that oil and gas and water out of the ground, 
someone has to move it. So that's where the midstream, um, you know, part comes in. So I always say both sides are equally important in the value chain, but um, I really like midstream. I love midstream. I think vendors are a lot more fun and (laughs) the, I just, I I can do midstream in my sleep. It's just, it's easy for me. Um, The other um, categories are are much more challenging, which is also fun. I mean, I love challenges and especially in this market, you know, when COVID hit and um, you know, we were losing, my company was losing money. I had to find creative ways to save money. So that's kind of where I thrive. Yeah. That's, that's a, a very important position, particularly in, in the downturn. I mean, I would also think that it's important when there's ups, upswings as well, because I, I was talking to this, uh, I was talking about this with my boss at the Devon Tower a couple of years ago. And it's like, when, when things are really good, you're building buildings like the Devon Tower. When things are really bad right now, you're looking for any way to cut beyond just people. It goes completely across the board. So you ideally want to manage the upswings as much as the downswings. Um, after Calnin, you've started oil field sourcing. Can you tell us a little bit about your company and, and what exactly you're doing um, since going off on your own? Yes. So oilfieldsourcing.com is a oil and gas supplier directory. So it, it's kind of a selfish project for myself being in procurement and, you know, bouncing from basin to basin and you know, when I go to support a new base and I don't really have a good handle on what the vendor base is out there, you know, I kind of have to rely on my guys out there. And, um, you know, I'll North uh, Northeast Pennsylvania is a perfect example. Um, the, the wells that they were operating out there are so remote that there were a limited amount of support and service companies out there. So for me to be able to find companies in that region took quite a bit of time. I would have to, you know, network with other salespeople from other companies, you know, talk to the frat guys and I would say, Hey, who's doing wireline out here? Or, you know, where can I find a, a good pipeline construction company to, to build a little gathering line? And, you know, they, they kind of knew, but you know, they, they didn't really know. So anyway, I wanted to build a tool that was online and I could find suppliers and service providers in a certain region with just a few clicks of a mouse. So um, my goal here is to create a really nice directory of, of companies so that people like me, like buyers and engineers, can find the companies that provide the services and products that they're looking for very quickly. Um, the website awesome. also, awesome. yeah, thanks. Um, I'm excited about it. So um, I just hope people get on board because there there's uh-huh. been- business listings that start at free. So there's no excuse for companies not to try to you know, promote, the, promote their company. So, um, and then companies can also yeah. list surplus equipment for sale and they can also post events. So events is another big thing on my website. I advertise all oil and gas industry events. So if you're looking for something to do or, you know, want to plan ahead to you know, sponsor an event, uh, you can find them on my website. So it seems like you, you, you know, in starting this, you've kind of entered into uh, Jeremy and I's world. You've now moved over to, <laughs> in a sale, in a sales way, you're trying to bring in clients to your site. So how's that transition been, you know, going from dealing with salespeople to kind of <laughs> almost doing it yourself, bringing, bringing uh, people together to get onto your site? What's that been like? 
Yeah, it's it's not as easy as it seems. So much respect to you guys for sure. Um, <laughs> but, but I am a people person, so you know I like to chat with people and talk to people. So um, have no qualms about you know making connections and reaching out to people and you know trying to talk to them about the value that the site can bring to them. So, but definitely, definitely the other side of the fence and and not not easy so it's a nicely designed website you know it it fundamentally makes sense to me is there like a a large scale competitor or anybody else doing this or or did you kind of bring this to the to the fold and, and you're the only one yeah there are a few others out there but the one that i like to talk about the most that i have a lot of respect for is don's directory and oh yeah back in the day i mean that was the bible like everybody had Don's directory, everyone was in it, and it catered not only to procurement people looking for service companies, but it also listed all of the you know EMP companies and the operators. So salespeople wanted to get their hands on this book too, so they knew you know who do I call at Kinder Morgan, who do I call at Williams. You know, it had all these company contacts in there, but you know it, it was a, everyone had to pay for it. And for me, I would get kind of ticked off. And I'd be like, well, why should I have to pay to find companies that want to sell things to me? You know? <laughs> um, so, so my website's free to search and it's also online. So it's live. I think Don, you know, Don's directory was a print. They focused on the, the print version. Yeah. They also had an online version uh, that was, is a, a little um, old school, I guess. You could call it, but so I'm trying to 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 bring that to a, a more of a modern platform. Yeah, I remember with Don's directory, actually, I guess we I must have hooked up to a procurement person at some point, and they were ticked off that we weren't in the Don's directory, and so I had to go and quickly create a posting and get it in there, and I, I don't know if I had to pay money for it or what, but it was interesting how they were upset that we weren't in there. Like it was a prerequisite to really doing business with them. You needed to be in Don's directory. It was crazy. Yeah. Yeah. No, it it makes sense to me. I mean, and and they got money from both ends, right? Right. They Exactly. Like for us, it made sense, at least for me, it made sense to subscribe because it's like, okay. I mean, before the internet was, I guess, as big of a deal for the oil and gas industry, I could thumb through and be like, okay, who is the CFO at this company? And it tells you their phone number, their email, right. And, and title. And, and it was, it was worth the 75 bucks or whatever we paid per year. Um, but I remember my first day at Bolo, I showed up and I'm like, well, who do I call? They're like, yeah, Salesforce isn't that built out, but you got this book right here yeah. that you can, you can look at this book and find some names. I'm like, all right. I mean, it's 2008, but I, I guess I'll just go to this book and welcome to oil and gas. And if I remember right, it was always regional. So I had to, I think I had, yeah. to, I had to choose which region I wanted to put value navigator in, you know, yeah. If you wanted the entire US, you had to buy five different regional books. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. I mean, I give them credit for trying. I I see what you're doing here and it's, it's like, it's, it's far more modern. The the surplus equipment piece, how do you get that information? Do people actually go in and list their extra equipment and be like, "I, I need to move this stuff so that I'm not paying, you know, losing money with it sitting in my, you know, in my, garage or whatever? Yeah. I mean, the site is fully automated by the user. So, I mean, if you had, you know, let's say you have a forklift that is sitting around and you want to sell it, you log on 
create an account, select, you know, which level of advertising you want. And you basically populate all of the information, upload pictures, and any leads go directly to you. So I'm not acting as a broker or a middleman, wow. I'm just providing, you know, advertising space for people to, to list equipment. So I'm hoping that that, you know, provides companies an outlet to, you know, sell some equipment and recoup some capital. Uh, when I was at Calnan, I was working towards selling, selling some equipment and this would have been a really good platform for me to use for that. Some, you know, uh, surplus compressors and separators, gas processing units, things like that. So it's pretty, pretty decent platform. And then, you know, people like me are looking for a deal because money's tight. So, you know, why should I buy a brand new piece of equipment? If I can find a nice use piece of equipment, um, I can go onto the site and, and look for something that's, you know, economical. So is the primary revenue source for you, the design of this website, is it going to be you get paid on the advertising or you take getting any kind of a piece of the action if something's sold on there? Nope, just the ad space. Just the ad space. Yeah. Well, good. Yep. Well, I, I mean, best of luck. This is a really good idea. And like most uh, inventions or innovations, it's usually change that's born out of pain. So you lived this, yeah. so you know, you're not the only procurement person or uh, service company that's trying to provide something uh, and bringing them together makes, makes a ton of sense to me. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about going from like a, a, a larger publicly traded operator, like an Encana or a Whiting and, and their process for procurement? Is it different than going to Calnan where it was kind of like Wild West, right? You just started off this thing and kind of did everything on the fly and did a big, big acquisition. Um, can you compare and contrast those a little bit or, or is it all fundamentally, Hey, I need to buy stuff and I'm going to go through my process and do it. Yeah. I mean, it's different everywhere. Um, you could have two equally sized operating companies and one could be, you know, very software heavy and, and one could be very manual. For example, at mm -hmm. Whiting, I issued Excel POs and, you know, manage wow. invoices um, manually, they would come through our invoicing system, and I had to kind of manually check off in my Excel file every line item that I was being invoiced for, just to do that that match. You know that the system wasn't you know set up to do so. You know, um, and then at Encana, we rarely issued POs for anything. Maybe if it was a big capital project and we were doing some some tracking, but. Um, at Discovery Midstream, we had a, a full-on PO system, and I issued purchase orders for everything. And so, I don't know, it's just different, you know, at, at every company and, and what their goals are and how they want to utilize their resources and their resources time, you know, and the risk associated with whether we issue POs or not. So, it's just different. Hmm. Okay, I'm, I'm going to ask difficult questions for me, but... Procurement. It's actually the most difficult part is forming the question. So I sell technology to oil and gas companies, you know, software technology is great. One of the things that killed, I really hate the fact when I see, okay, procurement's now involved. Oh man, now it's going to take a while. I get a little bit frustrated. So I, I'm, I'm, I don't want you to answer that question. I want to talk yeah. about your frustrations with guys like me, uh, you know, in the sales process, what is the number one pet peeve you've got 
from a procurement looking at salespeople who are coming in to sell this technology. You want one thing? She could write a book oh, about I'm this. Not, I know. Let's, let's get into the good ones. <laughs> um, uh, that's a really tough question because you know, I, I think it depends. I mean, if you're talking about technologies specifically, um, I don't know. I think maybe the worst thing that I've dealt with it, with technology salespeople is, you know, trying to sell me technology that I don't need or that I don't, or that I don't have the resources, you know, to, to use that, that software, or that technology, or, you know, something I don't understand. You know, if I approached you and said, Hey, I'm interested in your software, let's go. But, you know, if, if you guys are approaching me all the time um, for, for something that I don't need, or I'm not currently sourcing, then that's kind of a pain, but um, I don't know. That's there, so you, so you said you you like to give advice. To, <laughs> you like to give advice to salespeople. What what is your yeah. best piece of advice for sales guys? Oh man, I actually just posted a blog post today, and it's called "The More Is Not More Is Not Merrier," and it, it basically talks about you know multiple people from one company, you know, contacting me. So it's almost like there's intercompany competition and you know there's really no communication within a company they don't have a, a dedicated account person um so i'm just getting kind of hit from every angle with different salespeople, and, and not just salespeople. you know i'll have you know principals or executives at a at a company reaching out to me i'll have field personnel reaching out to me and it's just kind of like I don't need six of you guys, you know, reaching out to me. Let me know who my contact is and, and we'll go from there. So I think that's one of the, one of the, one of the pains that I suffer just because, you know, my time is limited and I try to respond to everyone and I just can't sometimes. And it, it sucks that I'm put in that position, you know? You've got some, I actually do read a lot of your blog posts, I think because the titles seem to be pretty captivating, but a lot of it's really true. I mean, the whole bullet points are your friend thing, right? Yeah. It makes so much sense. And it took me so long. I used to write these novels, novels. And it's like, just, just sum it up, dude. Like any, any sales book that you read, it's like, make, make your three points, right? And move on. And that's, that's all I really need. Don't tell me how this is the greatest bread slicer ever created because I don't, I don't need that. I yeah. just need to know in a very, a very concise way, uh, exactly what it is. Yeah. What is um, it? What does it do? And how, how will it help me? And how has it helped others? That's important. Totally. So I am curious, do, did you go to a lot of the sales presentations when uh, vendors would come to the office and start pitching stuff? And it's like, Hey, this might be a, you know, a seven figure, eight figure purchase. Um, you should be in the room or would it get to you after that point? And they say, well, we've made this decision. And you're like, have you negotiated? Should I negotiate? What, what are we doing here? Sometimes yes. Sometimes no. Yeah. Just depends on the service and, and the engineers that, you know, want control over everything. So once they, once they realize I'm on their, their side and on their team and not trying to dictate things to them, then, then I'm brought in as part of the team, but it take, takes a while for people to, to understand that about me. Have deals, have you ever had to, to basically make a deal fall apart because 
the, the terms were outrageous or it just put the company in, in such a poor position when it got to you? D- did you ever get to that point in these uh, procurement conversations? Um, I know that there, there have been times where, you know, a contract has been negotiated and I get the final pass at it and basically start, o- start all over again, just because yeah. I, I don't think that, you know, the, the pricing was calculated accurately or, you know, they were giving us a fair price for, for the current market conditions or, you know, whatever the case is. But, um, yeah, there have been times where we've started over. Yeah. Procurement people have gotten really smart. It used to be this thing where it's like, Hey, listen, we've already picked it. You're just going to go and buy it. And now they've evolved to the Sean Forbes level of, eh, I'm going to take one quick pass at this and save us an extra 10% or make sure that we're getting the, the right kind of deal. So kudos to you. I know salespeople can sometimes have a challenge with it, but it's kind of been an evolution for salespeople to learn. Like just because you've gotten through the process, you've got one last step and that's with procurement. Like I know legal's gone through their thing, but this is a person who's, who's going to need to be your friend and will probably be a tough advocate for their organization, but you got to make this stuff work. Yeah. And I, I ask a lot of questions and I like to learn everything that I can about every category of service or product that I'm buying just so that like you said, you know, when I am speaking with salespeople, I, I'm pretty educated and can be effective in my negotiating. You know, you can't just kind of come into a negotiation blind, not knowing anything about the product or service. You know, there's a thing called best value where you're not just considering price, you're considering, you know, their level of safety, their level of service, their lead time, the condition of their equipment, the knowledge of their their field people. So there are a lot of factors that go into making award decisions. Hmm. So I've got a growing up, take you back to the beginning. So you grew up in California, high school, first few jobs, and ultimately moved to Colorado. But what was your perception growing up and, and specifically, we've asked this question before, but you might have a different take given, you know, where you already said your background was growing, you know, going to a very diverse, uh, you know, high school and neighborhood. What was your perception growing up of the oil and gas industry? And if you, what would you have thought of your, your, your older self when you were younger, when you would tell her that, hey, I'm, I'm in the oil and gas industry? What was that like for growing up at that age in California in your area? You know, I, I'm ashamed to say that I was oblivious of the oil and gas industry and just energy in general until I actually started working in the industry. So I didn't really have much of opinion when I was younger, but I certainly do now, of course. And so, um, you know, I, I do my best to, to educate people, um, you know, provide uh, our side of the fence, you know, in terms of you know, fracking, you know, I went to the doctor once and she asked me what my stress level was like. And I said, Oh, it's pretty moderate. And she said, well, what, what, what do you do for work? And I said, I work in the oil and gas industry. And she just, you know, I could tell she just got locked up. Yeah. She locked up, (laughs) got really rigid. And, you know, she asked me what I thought about fracking and, you know, I turned the question back on her and I said, well, what do you think about fracking? You know, where, what, what do you feel? What do you think about it? And where are you getting your information from? And from there, you know, I proceeded to talk to her about, you know, the regulations and the reporting that uh, oil and gas companies have to do. And, you know, by the, by the end of our conversation, she was a little turned. So 
pretty happy about that, but I think it's our, I found our educating, it's our responsibility. Yeah. I found educating people in a scholastic way rather than get an argument it does, it does work, you know, don't be too challenging to them, but Sure. So when you grew up, I'm, I'm looking at where I think you grew up generally, you said LA County at one point, were you aware of the large oil and gas developments right there in the neighborhoods close to in and around where you were? Cause they, they're pretty well hidden at times. Oh yeah. Yeah. Not, not where I grew up. We were very, very, very residential, very residential with, you know, it's the concrete jungle, you know, no, no field, mm. no hills. Um, when you, if you were to get a little bit further out to Long Beach, that's where you would start seeing some activity with the offshore rigs, and you know just the the port there. But I, I didn't really venture out that way when I was younger. I, so. I remember, and at the time it was owned by Stocker Resources, going into a neighborhood, driving around the corner to go. I'm trying to find a field office for Stocker Resources, and you turn the corner. I mean, you're in a, a proper neighborhood in, in LA, you turn the corner and suddenly there's a giant oil field that's, you know, privacy fences around it, but you're in the middle of an oil field. It must've been a couple hundred wells in there. And I was surprised that, you know, if, until you turn that corner, you had no idea. And I, I think a lot of people in those areas didn't even know they're that close to oil wells to begin with. Uh, Brea, California, for instance, is, a, is another area where you just kind of get to the top of the hill and look down and suddenly there's wells everywhere. But when you're in the city of Brea, no idea that the wells are there. Yeah. I mean, I actually worked in Brea when I worked for bank of America for six years and I can't remember seeing one, but that was back in, you know, 90, oh. 92 to 90. Well, that field in Brea was discovered in 1924. I think it's one of the first fields in California and they hide it well. They hide it well. Yeah, it's really, I mean, it's very well hidden. And there's naturally occurring seeps right there in the town of Brea that mm-hmm. if you build your house, if you dig too deep in your house, you're going to hit oil. <laughs> wow. Yikes. They're about some well, property. Sh- <laughs> yeah. Royalty, royalties <laughs> all day. Yeah. yeah, seven barrels a day for life. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sean, this was fun. Definitely enjoyed getting your perspective on the procurement side of things. Uh, I encourage everybody to check out oil field sourcing, particularly the blog, if you're a salesperson. And uh, I wish you the best of luck with the site and have a feeling that uh, we're going to be doing some more negotiating over business deals one of these days. I hope so. Nice to meet you, Sean. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Jeremy. Appreciate it, guys. 